Well, 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 hello and welcome to another episode of the MedChat Podcast, a quote-unquote spirited discussion on the business of healthcare. I am your host, Michael Benistra. We will be talking with all of the players from the C-suite to the capital providers and the physicians to the policymakers. We're going to try and deconstruct this $4 trillion, 20% of our GDP beast of an industry, and we'll pepper in a little fun and maybe a libation or two along the way. Please enjoy another episode of MedChat. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of MedChat. I am here with the esteemed Dr. Jared Foran, the knee and hip replacement specialist at Pure Orthopedics, a practice within Panorama here in Denver, Colorado. Jared, how are you? Doing great. How are you? I'm doing well. Did I miss anything on that intro or anything you'd like to clear up? I think I'm esteemed by my kids, and that's probably the most thing. But other than that, you got it all right. So because this is a spirited discussion on the business of healthcare, um, are you enjoying a, an adult beverage tonight? I have one right here. Thank you. Oh, that's aggressive. I am, um, <laughs> I am not enjoying a full adult beverage. This is the non-alcoholic, untitled art, juicy IPA. It tastes like it has alcohol, but it does not. So it's semi-spirited. Only because I have a uh, party to go to tomorrow for Cinco de Mayo, so I'm pacing myself. Um, all right, so let's get into it. Uh, this episode is going to be around reimbursement rates and physician burnout and among other things that we'll talk about. Those are the two things we're going to zero in on. One of the things I found interesting is that you are one of four physicians in all of Colorado that have opted out of Medicare. And so I thought that that would be an interesting way to start this podcast is to talk about maybe why you decided to do that, what led up to it, and kind of the meat around that. Okay. So a little clarification. Uh, I'm one of four orthopedic surgeons in Colorado that have opted out that I know of. There's Good other, point. There's other non-orthopedic surgeons that have done so. So what does it mean to opt out of Medicare? So that means that uh, written a letter to Medicare saying I no longer want to participate in Medicare and that I will not I will not bill them for my services, nor will my patients be able to bill them for services that I render. That's kind of what opting out. And so so why do that? Um, Medicare is uh, obviously a, a necessary thing. It, it provides uh, insurance for, for the masses, particularly the elderly. However, over time, Medicare rates have been dramatically cut for physicians and no, no, no group of physicians has been hit harder than uh, total joint orthopedic surgeons, which is what I do in terms of surgery. Uh, over the years, um, the cuts have been, not only have we not, they not kept up with the cost of living, but the actual reimbursement goes down every few years. They keep decreasing what we get made. So for instance, in uh, around 30 years ago, 1992, orthopedic surgeons got paid inflation adjusted about $3,500 to do a total knee replacement. In 2023, in Colorado, at least, my average reimbursement for a knee replacement or a hip replacement or a partial knee replacement is about $1,000. So we're making about a, a third of what we made 30 years ago. Meanwhile, the cost of living, as we all know, has skyrocketed, particularly in the last mm -hmm. few years. And by the way, Medicare, as of late last year, planned on cutting up another 4.5% for, my, for my, what we do. So it's become a situation where you're doing more and more work and making less and less money, skyrocketing cost of labor and operating costs for our practice. And if you if you really look at the numbers, if I'm making a thousand dollars for a knee replacement, about seven hundred of that goes to pay overhead in my in my practice and my employees. So I take about three hundred dollars home after doing a knee replacement. Yeah, and I think that's an important important point to to 
make here at this point because some of those that are listening might say, well, you're making $1,000 per joint and knee replacement. Well, no, you brought up a very good point. I mean, it hasn't been keeping up with inflation, not only the cost of living for you and your family and the other physicians that are out there doing this work, but the cost of running your practice is really what you're talking about uh, with the cost of labor, supplies, insurance, everything that goes into running your practice. It's not like, oh, no, Jared Foreign Surgeon isn't making as much money and can't buy three three other houses. This is really a systemic issue within the 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 uh, industry that there isn't enough money to go around to pay people and to support these these independent practices. So, so, I, so I just wanted to make sure that no, that was correct. clear. The world has gotten much more expensive. We all know that food is more expensive, services are more expensive, much more. We pay the, the employees that we pay to to, man, to 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 be at our front desk and to room patients. Since I started practice in 2010, we're at two or three hundred percent of what you have to pay off everybody. And that's okay. It's fine that that the cost of late of the world is going up. But when we keep getting less and less when the cost is going up, that's a hard business model to sustain. But it's not right. just about finance. Not just about what I make at the end of the year. It turns out, getting into why I opted out of Medicare. At the end of last year, I did about a thousand hip and knee replacements. Just a little under a thousand. That's a lot. That's a lot of near. That's a lot of operations. Doing that kind of volume something has to give, right? And why do I do that kind of volume? You do it so you can sustain your practice. I mean, not to, um, to sustain any kind of quality of, of, of living that, that to, to keep it up, you have to do more. The problem with that is that service has to, has to give, right? You can't do, have that type of volume and be able to give the, the level of dedicated service you need to each patient, right? Not care, medical care is there, but the callbacks, the, the timely, uh, you know, refilling of prescriptions, what, whatever all those things mean, very hard to do. People want that. They want Neiman Marcus level of service, but the fact is that the government pays Walmart prices. So you can't really have both. So yep. one option is to do more and more. The other option is to quit private practice and go work for a hospital where you don't really care what you make because you just get a salary and get to go home and they worry about overhead. The other option is to do something like I did, which is opt out of Medicare and say, well, here's my price. If you want to pay, I'll take care of you. If not, I'll get you to see somebody else. Does that make sense? Yep. So tell me a little bit about uh, this opting out and what it means to you and what it means to your practice and how they felt about it. Uh, was that something that you had to fight for? Uh, does it affect the overall practice at all? And then, you know, who are you, who are going to be your clients and why do you think that uh, from a, from a outcome perspective, they're going to be better off? So it was, a, it was the opting out process. It was very hard for my practice for many years. I had been considering doing this and I thought it would probably never happen in my practice given our, our just our social structure and the way we're, we operate. But I think I, uh, I gave them a very compelling, my partner and I did this, Dr. Dave Schneider, who's a shoulder and elbow surgeon. We did this together, opted out and created a sub-brand within our group called Pure Orthopedics. Um, and after presenting our case uh, last year to them, they, they, they all voted us to do this. But the, but the consternation with that is that somehow, uh, you know, opting out of Medicare, I'm going to be dumping all the Medicare patients on my other on my other partners. Uh, I'm going to be exclusive. I'm going to put myself on a pedestal compared to them, which is not really the case at all. On the surface, you might think that, but it's not really the case. At some level, you know, my clientele will be m more affluent, people that can afford it, right? But but that's not always. There's people you'd be surprised what people value and what they're willing to pay uh, for for what they think is fair. There's people that that don't have a lot of money that say, yeah, I want Dr. Foran to do this, or I want Dr. Smith to do this. There's other people that think, 
we're just a commodity and we're all we're all very similar and you can you know interchangeable and that's okay it's based on people's values right so that's that's all fun opting out of medicare gives me options i don't just have to say pay me or, or i want to operate on you i saw a patient today she's from mexico this is a true story she's 40 she's a little younger than me she's 46 uh she's there with her son who translated for her she has no insurance at all terrible hip had hip dysplasia both hips are destroyed she can barely walk these houses i told her if you can find a way to pay for the hospital i'll do your surgery for free happy to do that it's not just about getting money but it's ultimately about valuing yourself and not taking less and less and less every year in a world that's more expensive to the point where it's, it's sort of crushing right yeah. i'd rather i'd rather make zero and do that patient for free than take $300 from the government to do the case. So talk to me a little bit about the day in the life, maybe before you opted out here, um, as far as uh, procedures go. I mean, what was a busy day for you? What was a, a normal day? I mean, you're doing a yeah. lot of surgeries. And I was so, doing a lot of, yeah, I was, I was uh, seeing 50, 60 patients a day in the, in the office. Um, you know, that's you know, 10, 10 minutes a patient. Uh, I was doing eight, eight total joint replacements a day, eight to 10 sometimes. Um, and I was booked out with that for three or four months. Like people couldn't get in for a long time. So um, a lot of work. I mean, people that work harder, no, no doubt. But, but it's certainly a lot of work. Um, it's not. It's not a situation where people think where you're going to go do a case or two, and make a ton of money. I can tell you what people think we make and how I got to this point. It's kind of an interesting story. Um, but it's not like we're doing a case or two and going playing golf all day. And so. Private equity uh, bought your business or bought your practice a couple months ago. Uh, who was who was the, last July? Okay, so who was the group that bought you? So uh, the group is called uh, United Musculoskeletal Partners, and they're backed by Welsh Carson. Okay, and what? Uh, give me a little insight. I don't know if you were on the forefront of the decision on that, uh, and if you you had a say in it or much of a say in it. But what, do you do you recall what the reason why you guys? decided to go private equity versus staying independent? Yeah, it's a great question. It comes really, I, I do know. Our, my group has always been fiercely independent. We've really wanted to, it's been part of our mission statement, being an independent group of practitioners that, you know, deliver great care, you know, not wanting to be hospital employee, not wanting to be subservient to, you know, other groups controlling us. As time has gone on, as costs have gone up, as reimbursements come down, as, as more and more, uh, legislation comes through making it harder to practice medicine there's clearly a risk going forward for private practices like mine we're becoming we're becoming sort of dinosaurs a lot of people are going to become employed from the hospitals a lot of people are merging groups or they're just dissolving so there's a lot of there's a lot of financial pressure private equity does two things in the short term it de-risks you get a you get a they they basically give you a check for future earnings so you're getting that ahead of time and you're saying, okay, I'll take, I'll take some risk off the table. I'll let this bigger group take some of that risk. That's, that's part of it. But the bigger thing is to survive, you got to grow in practice. You can't just stay the same. Hard to grow in our current situation. Um, you need capital for that. You need, you need partners with bigger pockets. And partnering with the right people allow us to grow. And not only grow locally, but regionally and even nationally. So this group is creating United Musculoskeletal Partners, UMP, is creating one of the largest orthopedic groups in the country, which does a lot of things. It gives you bargaining power with insurance companies. It gives you sort of leverage in, in, in negotiations. It, it allows a lot of things to happen that you just can't do on your own. So you've mentioned some challenges to growth. Let's say that you were going to stay private practice and, and not bring in PE. 
I imagine some of the hurdles there are bringing on new physicians and paying them salaries when their caseloads aren't quite uh, ramped up yet, maybe getting more space because you're growing your practice and adding doctors, more FTEs, more people to answer the phone, more people to do coding, uh, all of that stuff is there. I'm sure that was a, a part of the calculus when you when you decided to really go for the PE route versus self-funding or, or doing all, it yourself. All those things you just said, absolutely. We were carrying quite a bit of debt before PE as well, doing trying to, trying to do all these things, trying to grow, trying to bring more facilities. Um, and especially after the pandemic, it became very sort of cost prohibitive to, to have any kind of real growth. We had a really good period of growth in the, with we have great leaders in the sort of the, sort of the uh, early 2000, mid, mid 2000s, but that kind of came to a halt and we saw growth was just, was just coming very difficult to do based on the amount of money you could bring in currently. So Medicare is one aspect, uh, obviously private pay insurance is another, uh, forgetting about cash payment at this point, because that's that's 100% um, reimbursement. But for a insurance company, I mean, that's getting a little bit more difficult too with the new coding and um, and, and just the, the red tape that you have to go through to get paid. Is that a big issue uh, for you guys as well? It's incredible. Um, insurance companies, uh, well, first of all, most people don't know this, but most, almost all insurance companies, nearly 100%, pay a percentage of Medicare. They negotiate with practices. Depending on where you are in the, in the country, it's wildly different. You might be in Illinois and you might get paid to do a total knee because you've negotiated with Blue Cross, Blue Shield, 250% of Medicare rate. In, in Colorado, lo, lo, with very low rates, it might be 120%, and that's sort of all we get. So it's incredible. So when Medicare decreases their rates, guess what? who else does? commercial insurance. So it's a trickle down effect. It's a, it's a, it's a taking away of, of revenue to the, to the doctors as Medicare decreases the rates. But what was your question? I didn't answer it. Uh, no, you did. Um, it yeah. was, it was just the challenges with, it's not, oh, it's uh, not specific to Medicare. You've got insurance companies that you've got to fight with as well to get paid. Company, Yeah. The good thing about Medicare, by the way, is, is you can basically, you know, put on a case, someone who's indicated for surgery, and they'll basically pay for it. Medicare will pay for it. That's a good thing about Medicare. They don't have to give you a hard time for the most part. Private insurance want to fight tooth and nail. They want you to jump through all these hoops. They want to deny your surgery. They want to say your note wasn't correct. They want to say you didn't have this MRI. And so you're on the phone all day, you know, all day long talking to insurance companies to get them to approve your insurance. Here's what's really amazing about insurance companies. Most companies, if you overpaid them or they owe you money, they have accountants that will, will send Mike, you, Michael Bennett, a check saying we, you overpaid $100 or we owe you this. Insurance companies have, in this last year, we've, since we've got this new deal, have withheld literally hundreds of thousands of dollars of payments to us because as we went to this PE deal, this is, if I can explain it well, we changed our electronic medical record system because that because our, our, our private equity partner wanted us to. And when we did that, the billing got sort of outsourced and they were dealing incorrectly to the wrong people to get to say United or Anthem. And because it's over 90 days, they're not going to pay us for services rendered to the tune of millions and millions of dollars. And they can do that. I don't know of any other service that can do that. They will purposely withhold money and they can. So um, I was reading an article on, I think it was medicaleconomics.com. I'll do a link to the, um, to the article in this, in this, but uh, in the show notes, but it was talking a little bit about fee for service, which is how it's um, how it's done now with Medicare. But 
moving a little bit more towards value-based care, um, outcome-based care, uh, reimbur- or excuse me, outcome-based reimbursements. And so this is, this is already happening with hospital systems where, you know, their, their reimbursement rate is based on the pr- care they provide and then making sure that that patient doesn't come back. So they get dinged on their reimbursement mm-hmm. and, you know, trying to take care of people from primary care before they need surgery, before they get too sick, where it's really sick care versus health care and, and preventative. And so just wondering if you have any thoughts on that kind of a, of a platform. Outcome-based care is amazing. It's a great idea. However, outcome-based care is a, it can be very misdirected. For instance, I do a knee replacement on somebody. What outcome are you looking for? So you can get a knee replacement that doesn't get infected and you're not readmitted in 90 days, but long-term is never gonna feel good because it's not balanced and it doesn't work well. Outcomes are never going to catch that, right? So there's a lot of outcomes that are never caught that are the true outcomes. So it's sort of short-term outcomes that we, that we do find, which are very still very important, readmission rates, infection rates, all those kind of things but we missed the bigger outcomes of how people do long-term in the, we, we, when you talk about outcome-based care and, and this, and kind of that type of model, we've been doing that for a while. Panorama has done many, what's called bundles where we put ourselves at risk, um, uh, doing cases for a certain d- amount of money. Um, if we have better outcomes, we get paid more. If we have worse outcomes, we're at risk for, for loss of, of revenue there. And we did that for a while. And we did it with both private insurance and Medicare. The problem with was, so let's say we were in a bundle in 2015 and we got paid X amount of money to do a thousand cases. What happened was the next year, Medicare comes back and says, oh, you did a thousand cases for X amount of money because you did such a good job. We're now going to lower that rate to uh, uh, 90% of that X for the same amount of cases because you've proven you can do it. And then we do that. And the next case, they, they, they did it again and again. And by like the fifth year, we were underwater. So it's just like this race to the bottom and insurance companies do the same thing. So while the idea is great, the execution is how can the insurance companies make more money? They're not putting themselves through it. They're putting all the onus on, on the positions, which is not the intention of it. It's a great concept, but look, follow the money. And who yep. stands to make money off that model? The insurance companies. Yeah. And, you know, putting everything on the physicians, putting everything on the physician groups, leads into this burnout question, uh, which maybe was part of the reason that you opted out of Medicare. So talk to me a little bit about burnout. We hear about it. We heard about it during COVID for obvious reasons and and nurses, you know, sleeping in on gurneys and in coffee break rooms because they they couldn't leave and hats off to all those people that did that. But talk to us a little bit about burnout in in your world and what that means to, uh, to you and your, your, your colleagues. Right. So burnout is not specific to doctors. Like we can all get burned out. We can get burned out on life, on social, on our, on our, on our spouses, on, on whatever, right. We can get burned out when, when things become overwhelming. It's particularly burdensome for, for, for medical professionals because there's this level of stress with dealing with human lives, right. That we put, we put on ourselves and we like to do that because we, we, we want to do, but at some point burnout, and it gets talked a lot about in orthopedics because orthopedics have one of the highest burnout rates in the, in the, in all of medicine, I think maybe the highest and the highest suicide rates. So a lot, a lot, a lot of stress there um, for, for various reasons. Burnout can happen for a lot of reasons. Uh, one is that, you know, you sort of become emotionally numb to people's problems. You're dealing with people's problems all the time and eventually you can become, it can become challenging. And when you start losing yourself in other people, 
you know, you stop doing your hobbies and working out and just putting all your time into, in, into work, it can be challenging. I would argue, and this doesn't get brought up hardly ever, if ever, when you couple working that hard and putting your life and, 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 and everything into it. And by the way, I did between undergraduate residency, medical school and fellowship, I did 16 years of post high school training or post college training. I got a tremendous amount of time, right? And everybody, not just me, you put a lot of time in it. And I would say that this, this thing we talked about with Medicare, to do what you do and to work harder every year, taking care of people, to make less and less and be valued less and less, that's an absolute recipe for burnout. I don't know of any other profession where that, where that happens whether you're a plumber or a landscaper or an architect or an accountant, as you work harder, you tend to make more. <laughs> when you make less, it's, it's, telling, it's basically devaluing us. It's not just the fact that I'm making less and I can't go on vacation. It's just, what is that, what is that telling you as a human being? You're going to work harder. You're going to do more and more. And you know what? Everyone else is going to make more. You're going to make less just systematically. That's tough. Yeah. I, I mean, I think anybody that works uh, expects or wants a yearly raise or the yearly bonus or the quarter, you know, the quarterly bonus yeah. that they, they get. It's, it's, it's not specific to doctors and anybody right. that thinks right. that uh, that's not something that should be uh, for everybody that does a good job is, is fooling themselves. So um, what do you think? I, I mean, there's four surgeons that have opted out of Medicare in Colorado. Is that new? Is that, how long did that take? Do you think that's going to go to eight to 16 to 32? You know, is that going to become something that is going to be uh, the norm or uh, a, like a, a wave of that happening because yeah. of, of this? So there's about give or take 30, 35,000 orthopedic surgeons in the country, maybe 30,000. And I think uh, under 300 have opted out of Medicare. So it's less than 1% in the country. Most are in New York and LA and Chicago, sort of these big name guys that have you know, big reputations. I've been talking about, so, so why does Medicare keep re- decreasing their, their rate? I would say the biggest reason is because they can. They keep doing it and we keep taking it and we do more and more and they raise, raise them again and we grumble. We go to our meetings, we talk to each other and grumble, but they raise, they lower them and we do more cases. So until we say, I'm not gonna do that anymore and you get enough people saying, I'm not gonna do that, it's gonna keep happening. I do think people are going to start opting out more and more, right? I'm not some big famous national name. I'm not on, you know, but, but I did it and I'm doing just fine with it. I think when people start seeing that you can do this, uh, if you, if you have a, a good enough regional reputation, it just makes sense. Now we don't want to harm people. We don't, we don't, we don't want to lead to a, an access, an, an access problem, right? The reason why I feel very ethically okay with what I'm doing is there's plenty of other orthopedic surgeons in Denver. That people can do people's hip and knee replacement. They don't have to take me. They can choose to, but they don't have to. If I was opting out and no one else could do it, that'd leave me with an ethical dilemma. But there are other other people. But if enough people do what I'm doing, it's going to lead to access issues, and then hopefully the government will take it seriously. Well, I don't know what the stat is for uh, private equity owned specialists like yourself. I know it's growing and, and there's more and more specialists like cardiology and OBGYN and, and oncology groups that are getting bought up by private equity. But if private equity sees that they can make more money with their physicians opting out of Medicare, then that could be a catalyst for more and more physicians. No, no question. No question. Because those right. guys are going to want to make money. They want to make money. And, and if they make money, we do and vice versa. And that's, it should be a good partnership. But they, they had a little bit of uh, 
concern too when we were doing this, but I think we've shown them that they're going to make money. And so they're, they're kind of okay with it. What else? Uh, I'm going to put you on a, uh, I'm going to give you your own soapbox here. I'm going to pretend, let me set the stage here. You're in front of Congress. You're, uh, you've got the nice little microphone in front of you, a little glass of water. Everybody's up on, on front of you and they've asked you the question, what would you do to change reimbursement rates, Medicare, let's forget about the rate going up that you're paid, but what do you think is the issue, why they they don't pay more other than that they, they can, but what do you think the solve is for that? Well, well I, I think that the reason, so I think that the, the, the doctors, first of all, first of all, for me, I'm an orthopedic surgeon and, I'm, and I live in a nice house and I make, I'm not making enough money. I make plenty of money. Don't, don't get me wrong. That's not, not the point. And just so you know, I want, I want to point this out. Surgeons make a lot more than other doctors that are very deserving. Primary doctors, pediatricians, criminally low. They are smart people that take great care of our kids and our families and our mothers and our fathers, and they make way less than we do, which is sad. Okay, so let's not turn this into a personal woe is me problem, right? The poor orthopedic surgeon. So it's a bigger problem than just, there's a certain amount of medical dollars out there in the economy. It's, you call it maybe not a zero-sum game, but maybe close to one if you look at how medical dollars are allocated. They, but they don't hit, the, the insurance companies make money, hospitals seem to keep making money, pharmaceuticals keep making money, um, a lot of it. And they hit the blue collar worker, which is the doctor. And we can't unionize, it's not, we're not allowed to unionize. It's, it's illegal for doctors to unionize. Uh, so they hit the place that they can, which I get. And then make, if I was on the other side, I'd probably do the same thing, but it's a problem. I sort of had, for a long time, I've had a three-pronged approach to fix access and reimbursement. I think that we've already done a good job in some states, Colorado is one of them, of, of tort reform. Uh, it's, hard to, it's hard to make a ton of money off suing doctors now, although I have an interesting story. I get paid $1,000 to do a hip replacement, of which I make 300 But if something happens to go wrong, like someone's leg lengths off, I get sued for a million dollars. Do that math. If everything yeah. goes perfectly, I make 1000 take home 300 If something goes a little wrong, I lose a million. That tells me we value what we do and when it goes wrong, but when it goes right, we don't really value it that well. So that's, that's an aside, but, but so tort reform is important. Forget these frivolous lawsuits, right? That has happened over the last decade or two, which is helpful. The second thing is I wouldn't need to opt out of Medicare or any insurance if there was something allowed called balance billing. So I can easily accept Medicare or anybody could, but to say, I will accept your insurance, but, but if you to see me, I'm going to charge you an extra $500 or $1,000. But currently, that's not allowed. You're either all in or all out. I think allowing balance billing would open up the door to a lot of people being happy. Um, you know, it, it, you know, there's a model in medicine that is actually free market. It's not. It's not Medicare. Medicare is the opposite of free market. They set rates, right, and they're lower and lower. But plastic surgeons set their rates, and patients go to see them, and they happily pay it. And the surgeons are happy, and the, and the patients are happy. Hopefully, they're happy. Um, and that's free market, but we're far from free market. So allow, allow balance billing. The third is, um, I would say, allow tax break for doing free or indigent care for hospitals and doctors. If I do a case for free right now, I can't write that off. I'll be happy. I, I still do them for free. But to be able to write that off would be very helpful. Those kind of things would be, would be, those three things would be a nice way to, to, to further access and, and really decrease burnout and allow people to, and doctors to make what what is more free market. 
you're up in front of Congress still. You kind of answered some questions about reimbursements and and maybe some different ways to package payments and that sort of thing. But what would you do about healthcare in general? So what would you what would you think would be some of the fixes for the the fact that it's such a large percentage of our GDP and it costs so much money and it seems to be seems to be have some some broken components. Do you have any yeah. thoughts on on that? I do. I would I would um it's tough because I I'm a I'm a I'm a capitalist and I and I like free market and you know the insurance companies are businesses. They make billions in profits. Billions. While while everybody else is making less and less, it's hard to regulate that, but something's got to give in terms of in terms of that exact, I don't know if you have thoughts about that. Um, how, how do you, how do you still keep it free market, but say you can only make so much. That's a, that's a tough problem to have, but somewhere in there, something has to change, right? We're talking about in, in the last several years, these insurance companies have made record profits, profits, not, not just revenue, but billions and billions and hundreds of billions of profits. But there's this middleman that doesn't actually give care, right? They just administer uh, other people's services and make money. So somehow taking that out of the equation. I also think that we talk when we talk about bundles and 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 care for you know outcome based reimbursement, which we talked about earlier. The onus has always been on the on the physician to either make or, or to to go at risk and make money or lose money based on outcomes. But patients have very little skin in the game of how much medical many medical dollars are spent. For instance, in the United States, we talk about how spending of uh, medical spending per capita is higher than other countries to have quote unquote better care than we do. A lot of that is driven by Americans' demand for services, right? If you live in a third world country or somewhere else, you're not going to go in and demand an MRI when your soldier's been hurting for a week. Here, patients sort of expect it. And if you don't do it, they're mad. They're going to write a Yelp review on you, a Google review, and destroy you. I think shifting some of the cost burden to patients would be a big deal, including in the bundles, right? So, yeah. so if you're in a bundle and a patient goes to the hospital and you're going to get paid $10,000 for the episode of care, let's say, and the patient then goes to a nursing facility after their hospital stay, the doctor or the hospital lose money. If the patient was responsible for that from that extra care, they would probably go home instead of a nursing facility. Make sense? Yep. I mean, this may be one of the most complex issues uh, in America right now, so I'm not going to profess to have any kind of solutions, but I do have some ideas. I mean, what would I do to make the costs go down and make healthcare better. I think that it's a, it's a fine line with you, like you said, the insurance companies and being a capitalist and, and wanting a free market and free enterprise. I think taking that away and putting it government controls on that gets very slippery. Cause I don't frankly think that the government does a whole, that's, yeah, that's a not job at a whole lot of things. But, but do you have an answer for that? I'm, I'm curious. I like the way your I, mind thinks. So. But I do like the thought of, taking little steps. And so putting something on the consumer, one, a little bit more choice, two, a little bit more out of pocket, not from a deductible perspective, but right, from an actual right. procedural point of care. And mm -hmm. so you want to go to the ER, it's $100 or it's $50 or, or, or something along those lines where, and maybe not the ER, but um, there's a cost out of your pocket and then there's less paperwork and there's less issues with the insurance companies. And um, you know, I think that this before all of that, I think that this country probably needs to get a little healthier as a whole. And so, 
you know, food choices, the cost of, of nutritious food versus junk food and fast food and, and just more of a cultural shift towards being healthy. And maybe that's happening with younger generations, but certainly not with the baby boomers. And um, I think that that's, that's probably a, a much deeper issue, but there's little things that, that can be looked at and probably should be looked at. And I do think that outcome-based care is probably an out, outcome-based reimbursements, I'm sorry, and payment really needs to be looked at. And maybe that's a way to, to reward doctors that are doing better jobs. I think done right, I agree with you. Outcome-based reimbursement makes total sense. It just needs to be done right. It can't be a race to the bottom where when you hit your marks, you get paid less the next year. And I think what you, you kind of hit on it, having the patients have skin in the game with these outcome-based reimbursements makes a lot of sense too. Well, the other thing too is the insurance companies need to not make it so hard. You mentioned Medicare has a set or when you, when you suggest a surgery for a patient, they say, okay, and they'll pay for it. Now they don't pay as much, but there's not as much red tape. One of the physicians I had an earlier podcast talked about peer review. And so he would suggest a hand surgery for a patient. And then the insurance company would suggest that he needs to talk to three other hand surgeons to make sure that they agree that that's a procedure that this patient should have. And so, you know, that's just one of the many things that you listed that the insurance companies kind of put roadblocks up for you to get paid. I mean, that's got to stop. If you are a physician and you have tenure and you have track record and you have good outcomes, then if you suggest that this procedure needs to be done, then the insurance company needs to pay for it. Because all the administrative background that goes into trying to process a payment or get that done, mm-hmm. I mean, how can you even put a price tag on it, that? It's but it's, it's got to be monumental. Now, now, to balance that discussion, because you're right, I think you're right. The problem is humans, doctors are humans and all, all humans can be trusted. So when there's a, when there's a chance for abuse in the system, there will be. If a doctor stands to make money doing an operation or a procedure or prescribing a medication, there will be abuses of that. So the insurance companies can't trust people carte blanche, right? They can't just do that. No. But but I would say that there should be some mechanism that over time you prove yourself to be a trustworthy physician. You're doing the right thing. You can do audits. You can almost do like, I've thought about this, do like, you know, fake patient visits and you, and you make sure that the doctor's doing the right thing. And then you, you trust them to do the right thing. But they don't, it's not about trust. It's about the more they delay and block, even if for an amount of time, that's money in their pocket. There was an article recently in the New York Times, I think, or Wall Street Journal or something, where it was, I think it was Aetna that was blocking like 30% of cases without even reviewing them. And then they'd have to go back and go through the process and they'd know some of those wouldn't, the doctors wouldn't call, or at least at a minimum, they get to keep their, their, their capital longer before they pay it out. Um, it was about a month or two ago that article came out. It was crazy. Yeah, I, I hear you and, and other physicians have commented on the whole trust factor and that you can't give carte blanche to just bill whatever you want. But there's got to be an algorithm that can figure this out where you've got a physician that's got good outcomes, that's been in the business for a long time, that they've got a reputable practice, any number of different inputs that an algorithm could figure out to say, OK, this guy is low risk for uh, submitting fraudulent claims or, or right. whatever. Right. I don't know that that's the strongest argument for not doing it, but because yeah. uh, I, I feel guess, like there's technology that can get around it. But I, I, it, it's a valid point. I guess I would ask: is it, Do they have an incentive to do that? Do they have an incentive to just say we trust you and go? I think they have an incentive to block you. Of course they do. They have the money, right? But that's where the oversight comes in. And if you're going to have the government involved in private insurance at all, or in a in a big larger way, 
you've got to have some oversight there where they cannot make it as difficult to get paid if you're a physician or a physician group, or if you're a consumer and you're paying insurance and you need a procedure, they shouldn't make it so difficult to get that procedure or to get the prescription that you need or to get the follow-up or the, frankly, ongoing physical therapy or ongoing medications that, that some of the people have where there's chronic issues that, you know, they're, they're dealing with a chronic issue. They're dealing with the stress of that. And then they're dealing with having to call the insurance company every month because they told them to fax them something and they didn't get it. We talked about a lot. I don't know if there's anything else that you'd like to cover. I know that one of the, uh, we, we covered your, your two main things that you that you were interested in talking about, but as, as we've gone along here, is there anything yeah. else that is? I would like to say it's not all negative, right? I think doctors still do well in this country. I still think, even though you'll see stats of how we have the highest cost of care, of care but the, you know, not the best outcome. That being said, we have probably the best medical system in the, in the world. People come here from all over the country, all over the world for their care. It's, it's wonderful. We have waste. We have a lot of things wrong, but it's not all bad. So I, I hate to just leave negative, bad. It's awful. But there's a lot that can change. There's a lot that, uh, better that can come out of the way we do things. Um, and I think we should we need to stop punishing financially our blue-collar workers, the doctors, the physicians, the surgeons, the pediatricians, and really value them. Because people do value us. And the government does it. One last thing I want to talk about. When I, Ten years ago, now, almost 15 years ago, when I was a fellow, I did a study um, out, out I got interested in, in what people thought we actually made to do in the hip or knee replacement because people were saying when I was a fellow, you know, when you're a fellow, you're working with, with other doctors. And I had some, uh, you know, it was in Chicago and uh, uh, a couple of patients said things like, oh, you're going to do a good, go do a case and go on your boat after this. Right. And so I was like, well, they must think we make a ton of money. Right. They must. I got the sense they, they thought we made a lot. So I, I asked a few, what do you think? What do you think Dr. Koprowski, one of my attendings, what do you think he makes for this case? $10,000, dollars Okay, they're off by a factor of 20. So uh, my friend, my good friend and colleague, uh, Neil Sheth, we, we did a study. We, we surveyed over 1,000 people uh, in the waiting room for, you know, that were getting a knee replacement or had one. And we asked them, what do you think Medicare actually pays your doctor? Just your doctor, not the hospital, but your doctor for surgery. What do they think they should make? And what do you think they actually get? So those three questions, right? So they thought that we should make about $15,000 for Medicare per case, which is a lot. I don't think it should be that much. I really don't. They thought we actually got paid about 10,000. This is this 1,000 people entering this. We, got, we thought we got paid about nine or 10,000 per case. And when they heard what we actually got, most people were like, no way, it's impossible. And that was, that was when we got paid 30% more than we get paid in 2023, right? It's mm -hmm. actually 30% less now than it was back then. So it, it's pretty wild what people actually think we get versus what we do. My point there is that I think that people are value us more than our government does. And, and that's what hurts. That's what leads to burnout. And that's what, that's what the, the problem is with our, with our system. Um, we've been devalued. Physicians have been devalued by, by a not free market system. Medicare is not free market. It's a, it's a government system saying, here's what you pay. And one last thought. When I was in residency in medical school, no one wanted to take Medicaid. Medicaid was a bad word. Medicaid is, is welfare. I got my numbers last year of all the hips and knees and partial knees that I did. Medicaid now in Colorado pays more than Medicare. Welfare, Medicaid, you don't have a job, 
pays more than Medicare, which is interesting, right? Well, you know, one of the things about this conversation is that what people need to think about, and this is a little bit long-term thinking, but physicians are getting older. There's not a lot of them coming into this the the sector and coming out of. Um, there's not enough doctors graduating from med school and residency and fellowships to fill the demand for the space that there is. And so, one of the issues with Medicare and reimbursements in Medicare is that if doctors can't be entrepreneurs because they can't afford to be and they can't go into private practice, then they go work for a hospital system. Okay, mm-hmm. and then you've got arguably worse outcomes with hospitals because it's been proven time and time again that physician group, independent physician groups provide better outcomes for patients than hospitals do. That is a potential problem on the horizon as well, is that if you make it so difficult for physicians coming out of college to join a practice or that practice to to be in business, then you might have a care issue that is is much broader and deeper and Absolutely. granted it's a little bit hard for people to get their arms around that that might happen because it's, it's far out there, but you know, that's a real, real issue that could happen. Absolutely. No, you're right. You're right. But here's the, here's you know what the real truth is though. We've been talking about money this whole time. We don't go to become doctors to make money. We want to make money too. And this is really true. And since we've been so money focused, because that's what we're, we're talking about. The truth is why do we keep taking less and less from the government and, and insurance? Because we want to take care of patients. Right. And it, I would keep taking care of patients, even making less money. and I'd still be happy doing it, but it's hard. Right. And that's the bottom line. And every, and I think the government knows that insurance companies know that we're going to keep taking care of patients, even they pay us almost nothing. It's just to be the detriment of patients that we make less. It does. Um, well, I appreciate it. I don't know if you've got anything else you want to touch on. Want to talk about real estate. Yeah. Uh, you know, that's my business. Um, you guys sold your buildings to our competitor, so I don't like you, but, uh, gave you an opportunity. You did. No, I just, I appreciate the, uh, the context of the, the, the discussion. I think everything that you've talked about is, is certainly an issue. I think on a lot of physicians minds, because I talked to a lot of physicians and stop the, stop the, stop the bloodshed in terms of reimbursement. That that's the bottom line here, right? Keep up, yep. at least keep up with the cost of living. Get All right. Well, I appreciate your time. Enjoy yeah, your thanks. night. I know it's getting late and yeah. I will, uh, I will see you soon. Thanks. Happy editing. Thanks, buddy. Okay. Take care.
the problem with that is that service has to has to give right you can't have that type of volume and be able to give the, the level of dedicated service you need to each patient right not care medical care is there but the callbacks the, the timely uh you know refilling of prescriptions what, whatever all those things mean very hard to do people want that they want neiman marcus level of service but the fact is that the government pays walmart prices so you can't really have both so yep. one option is to do more and more the other option is to quit private practice and go work for a hospital where you don't really care what you make because you just get a salary and get to go home and they worry about overheads the other option is to do something like i did which is opt out of medicare and say well here's my price if you want to pay i'll take care of you if not i'll get you to see somebody else does that make sense okay. yep so tell me a little bit about uh, this opting out and what it means to you and what it means to your practice and how they felt about it. Uh, was that something that you had to fight for? Uh, does it affect the overall practice at all? And then, you know, who are you, who are going to be your clients and why do you think that uh, from a, from a outcome perspective, they're going to be better off? So it was, a, it was the opting out process. It was very hard for my practice for many years. I had been considering doing this and I thought it would probably never happen in my practice, given our, our, just our social structure and the way we're up, we operate. But I think I, uh, I gave them a very compelling, my partner and I did this, Dr. Dave Schneider, who's a shoulder and elbow surgeon. We did this together, opted out and created a sub-brand within our group called Pure Orthopedics. Um, and after presenting our case, uh, last year to them, they, they, they all voted us to do this. But the, but the consternation with that is that somehow, uh, you know, opting out of Medicare, I'm going to be dumping all the Medicare patients on my other on my other partners. Uh, I'm going to be exclusive. I'm going to put myself on a pedestal compared to them, which is not really the case at all. On the surface, you might think that, but it's not really the case. At some level, you know, my clientele will be more affluent, people that can afford it, right? But but that's not always. There's people you'd be surprised what people value and what they're willing to pay uh, for for what they think is fair. There's people that that don't have a lot of money that say, yeah, I want Dr. Foran to do this, or I want Dr. Smith to do this. There's other people that think we're just a commodity and we're all, we're all very similar and you can, you know, interchangeable. And that's okay. It's based on people's values, right? So that's, that's all fine. Opting out of Medicare gives me options. I don't just have to say, 